I'd like to introduce myself. Thank you for coming. I am Diana Thompson, the curator of the collection here at the National Academy. And on behalf of Carmen Brannigan, the entire staff and board, I'd like to welcome you to tonight's review panel. This event occurs once a month here at the National Academy from fall through spring with a two-month break over the holidays, which we're just coming off the heels of. <laughs> so welcome. This program is organized in partnership with David Cohen and ArtCritical.com. And I'd like to mention that this season of the review panel marks the 10th anniversary of the start of our partnership with David, who has kept this wonderful and unique program thriving for so many years. I should also mention that the review panel is generously supported by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and the New York State Co Council on the Arts. Tonight's panelists will discuss several exhibitions currently on view in galleries around New York. I also encourage you to see the exhibitions that are on view here at the National Academy. In the museum galleries until May 3rd is Self, Portraits of Artists in Their Absence, an exhibition that explores the changing conventions of self-portraiture over the course of 200 years. Featured in the exhibition are works from the Academy's 19th and 20th century collections, alongside works on loan by major modern and contemporary artists. Also currently on view in our curatorial lab, which is a dedicated project space on the museum's fourth floor, is an installation entitled Revealing Architecture, which features works by the architectural firm FX Fowl and painter and academician Richard Haas. Right outside this room in the Academy's school galleries is the exhibition Experiments in Self-Portraiture, which feature works by Academy students and faculty and will be on view through March 1st. On your seats, you'll find more information about exhibitions and how to become a member of the National Academy. But now for the review panel, please join me in welcoming tonight's guests, as well as our moderator, David Cohen, publisher and editor of, of artcritical.com. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. And welcome back to the review panel for this uh, second half of the 10th annual season. Um, and thank you very much deeply to the, all the officers uh, and, and trustees and academicians of this venerable institution for sticking with this uh, crazy idea for, for a full decade, almost, of actually conducting live reviews of current art exhibitions. I mean, it's, it's actually, uh, you know, there are panels and debates on all kinds of subjects, and there are reviews of art exhibitions. But to put the two together is actually asking people who very carefully choose their words when they're going into print to be able and willing to extemporize and modify their views as, as the uh, momentum of the panel takes a particular shape. And that, I think, is a, an act of um, courage and, and integrity that, that deserves recognition for the, for the many, many dozens of uh, art critics, men and women, who've, who've been on this program so far. Um, I would also rather shamelessly like to uh, plug uh, the review panel Philadelphia. Uh, in the last three years, artcritical.com has been collaborating with the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts um, in Philadelphia. And next Wednesday, uh, Joan Waldemath, Waldemath uh, Judith Stein, and uh, David Demp uh, Dempervolf will be joining me to review art exhibitions down in Philly. Who is, who is at the review panel for their first time this evening? Anybody? 
Fantastic. Wow. Excellent. Good. Well, for your benefit and to refresh the memories of uh, the rest of us, uh, let me run through the format of the evening, which is simplicity itself. We've all been to see four exhibitions, uh, one of them in two or possibly three venues, but four exhibitions, four artists. We've made videos uh, of that, those exhibition experiences just to refresh their mind as to what they look like. Um, also, no, no shame attached, but just as market research, put your hands up if you've seen uh, two or more of the exhibitions we're going to be. Goodness me, that's an intimidating, um, that's intimidating for us on, us on the panel. It's uh, rather um, means, that, well, actually, it's beautiful. It's what we're here for. It's what it, it's, it makes for a very much richer and more interesting conversation. Um, not that the onus of description is in any way removed from the panel, just because we've all seen the shows. Um, but anyhow, we, we show the PowerPoint, which we, we show the uh, videos, the first couple of shows we're going to talk about, which this evening I happen to be Mama Anderson, David Zwerner, and uh, Merlin James at Sigma Jenkins. The panel then discuss sequentially those two shows among themselves. Uh, the audience then lets off steam and gives their comments and uh, uh, probes with uh, their uh, questions. Uh, and then we repeat the exercise for the, for the other two shows, and then we uh, embrace the cold night air. So that is what we're doing. And we are recording, uh, as we always do, the proceedings, uh, which are then available for podcast at artcritical.com, where you can go and hear uh, a very full archive of, uh, of, of, of past reviews now. Uh, Christian Viveros Fonet, who's a sometime panelist, said uh, at, at one evening of the review panel, you get a year's reviews. And when he first said that, I thought, what does he mean? And I, well, actually, you're getting four critics on four shows uh, and, and seven times a year. Uh, that's probably as much art criticism as a civilized human being would ever want to read. So, yes, you are, the, the review panel is the equivalent of The New Yorker or, uh, or the Wall Street Journal in terms of the coverage, the in-depth coverage that you're going to get. So, no further ado. Well, actually, some further ado, but it's not an ado. It's a pleasure to actually introduce my panelists, my guests for this evening. Um, to the left of me is uh, Christopher Stackhouse, um, a, a, a novice on the panel, and very welcome and very, uh, very pleased to see Chris. Christopher Stackhouse is a polymath, I think one could say, an uomo universale. Uh, as we're in the National Museum of Disegno, one can throw out some Italian occasionally. Uh, he is a poet and a visual artist and a critic, and he has acted. He's been involved in performance art. I'm pretty sure I've left some things off the list of what he does. He is uh, significantly the editor of Fence magazine, uh, one of our preeminent uh, literary magazines, which also has significant visual arts coverage. So please welcome Christopher Stackhouse. Oh. Um, Martha Schwendener is uh, an art critic for the New York Times. And uh, that's the kind of resume introduction that the rest is footnotes, as they say. Um, but, but Martha is also uh, an art historian, besides her criticism, um, and she is uh, uh, an art historian of the 19th century, yes? No, 
20th century. Oh, yes. I knew it was one of them. Okay. As you, and 21st. As you see, I'm deeply versed in, in her, her works. But Ma uh, Martha Schwendener of the New York Times and Vincent Katz, our second literary magazine editor of the evening. They like... Um, they're like buses, you wait forever and then two come at once. Um, he is the editor and indeed the founder of uh, Vanitas, a magazine of poetry, which also has a visual component. Uh, Vincent Katz is uh, also an Uomo Universale, is a poet and literary uh, and an art critic uh, and an art historian uh, and a translator from, from the Latin. Um, and his, uh, his areas of research include um, the artists Rudy Burkhardt um, and uh, uh, Alex Katz and Francesco Clementi, and um, his, uh, he's made also a special uh, re research, a special research interest of his is Black Mountain College. His book is back in print on that subject. So now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your full panel. So Vincent, um, with Mama Anderson's show at David's Werner, we have uh, an increase in scale, uh, not just in that the individual paintings, well actually we have an, in, in, an, an increase in both size and scale, in that um, within the more traditionally sized uh, canvases um, in the gallery further to the west, uh, we have uh, a scale of perspective and of the size of objects which uh, contrasts with the more um, crowded uh, scenes uh, that we might be familiar with in earlier work of Mama Anderson. And then we have this um, extraordinary um, blow up of some of the, some of the imagery uh, in, this, uh, in these, these uh, gargantuan murals. Um, uh, what 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 what's what impact is scale having in, in do, you, do you feel in in these shows? Um, well, I have to admit that this exhibition kind of baffled me. I didn't. I don't think I really got it. I, I went to it with a lot of anticipation because I, I'm kind of a fan of her work, but I feel like she's maybe in a in a transitional moment, or she's you know going in a different direction. And um, scale, to answer your question specifically, um, it's interesting. I took some photographs of the exhibition, too, and, and looking at this video just now. I mean, some of it looks more effective to me in the photographs than, in, than when I was actually there in person. And what I liked in her previous work was, was the sense of scale that was in the paintings, like a lot of interiors, right, those rooms that she's famous for. And here I felt like she was go intentionally going for a really two-dimensional effect, and I'm sure there's a reason that she's doing that, but to me it felt um, a little flatter. And I tried to look you know, more deeply into the painting, and that was actually quite beautiful if I took the time to look even just at a background, how she painted a black area. 
but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't as captivated by the imagery, I guess I have to say, as in her earlier work. Yeah. Um, Martha, I've, I've, I don't know where my feelings are towards the shift, but there is most certainly, as, as Vincent's uh, describing it, a shift. I mean, in, 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 a, in a typical, although her work, has, her, her career has seen many changes, but uh, in what one might, what I think of as a typical uh, Mama Anderson, you have almost a, a sort of bleeding between interior and landscape. You have sort of landscapes spilling out of cozy Swedish interiors and, and an interior and a sort of domesticizing of uh, big vistas. Um, and here, as, as Vincent uh, aptly describes it, we have a kind of um, almost, it almost feels like a certain periods of Picabia or um, uh, or circus signs of the of the 19th century that one 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 um, gets a, a, a very different um, uh, focus um, do you feel that this has grown out of uh, her work or is this some sort of strange departure I agree I think it's transitional um, <sighs> I think your video caught it really well, the fact that when you walk into Zwerner now, you're, you're sort of, you're practically in a museum, you know? And so, and you didn't have, there were no, you know, the people were kind of cozying up to the Merlin James paintings, whereas this is sort of, you know, so you, you walk in that space and you think, well, this better be good, you know? I mean, and it, it just, uh, it just kind of fell a little short. Um, to answer your question, I think you hit it right on the head with the Picabia. Um, and some of those kind of Balthasy, almost a little John Kearney. It's it's trying to be a little weirder than she is, and and a kind of quasi surrealism that didn't really work for me. I just wasn't particularly crazy about this show. The one thing I really liked a lot is the fact um, that she most of them are painted on um, plywood, and then you know they say panel. It's kind of got a fancy sound to it, but. There, the for me the kind of frisson, if there is one, is between that she's a very good painter, and so it's on this you know sort of crappy surface, and so it really kind of invites you to examine the object a little bit more, and that was frankly my kind of favorite part about it because I don't, I don't, I, you know, there there were a couple of the the ones that were a little bit more. Um, not so self-consciously provocative, but I just sort of felt like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not really following you on this kind of like peep show kind of thing. So, all right, yeah, not yeah. a huge fan of the okay. show. Okay, okay. Well, we can <laughs> we can debate that because I I'm sort of beginning to feel that perhaps I am. Um, all right. I mean, I yeah. But uh, Chris, um, um, where do, where do you what do you what do you make of it? This 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 shift this uh, shift in focus. Uh, well, this is the first time I've ever seen her work, um, so I, I had no expectation. Uh, so a fresh eye, excellent. It was com completely yeah. fresh. Um, I, according to the video, I only saw uh, paintings in one room, uh, which was the large, dark room with the uh, big wall painting. I didn't know if it was a painting or um, a, uh, a vinyl. I, could, I didn't spend much time there. It was dramatic lighting, very theatrical. Um, I was I was turned off by it immediately. Um, you know, I, I didn't I didn't think there was enough work there. Um, I think conceptually speaking, um, to use my one of my favorite terms in terms of the extra formal content of the work, there was very little that I could grab a hold of uh, in that particular room. But looking at the video 
and I'm uh, looking just at the image that they put on the press release, the painting ceremony from 2014. Um, I do get a, 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 you know, a read of some material that is not so much concerned with, um, with craft or, uh, or, good, or good painting. Um, I didn't think the paintings were particularly good, and I didn't think her uh, draftsmanship um, could hold up to the spare visual con image content in the paintings. Um, and so there was a uh, kind of, a, I don't want to say depressive feeling, but mild anxiety about um, that much real estate being committed to such thin work. Um, that said, um, I think that the painting I just mentioned, Ceremony, with the two women performing, um, there is a kind of feminist uh, anxiety um, a kind of uh, potential conversation about um, women addressing women uh, with power and with caution. Um, there's a choreographic element that um, could be explored um, in her work. Um, I got the sense, to cut it short, that she's probably less interested in painting and drawing and more interested in other art forms, which it'd be interesting to see her engage, particularly performance video um, and theater. Yeah, that's, that's what struck me as, as particularly odd about the, the explosion of, of, of size in, the, in the, what I think of as the secondary room. I mean, I, I felt that um, the, the main um, gallery of paintings is, is a, a new chapter in the way she deals with uh, the figure, and I think an upping of the ante in the distinction she makes in her work between um, say, living, breathing figures and objects which are figural in some way. Um, and, and so um, the, the mama that we all love is, uh, or not all of us, but uh, the, the mama that might be more loved than the, this, this, this new mother, uh, this new mama, sorry, Freudian slip, um, is, uh, is, is one where of a, a kind of more, say, um, psychologically kind of complex, but at the same time sort of uh, dainty uh, paint application, the kind of frothy uh, feeling. Whereas, yeah, whereas here there's, got, there's, a, tough, there's a toughness. But don't you think it's a kind of psychological thing you've seen so many times before that you're kind of like, ah, oh, you know, like the big figure, that big cutout figure, did you like that? In this, in the second, in the in the second room. No, no, I couldn't. I didn't like the uh, big. The, the big didn't make sense. No, I, that's that's that seemed to me a prop for some sort of. It's as if the Swedish National Royal Opera has commissioned her to do Pier Gint or something, and and um, and and that's 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 sort of some shipped in scenery. It didn't that that threw me. It just didn't make uh, didn't make any sense. Whereas, um, no, I, I found the, the 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 slightly tougher surfaces of. The, the, the paintings on plywood, um, they had a kind of gravitas that I was gravitating towards. Um, and I, but I think that the, the, the old mama was um, sort of very easy to love, and, but then difficult to actually work out what she was doing in it. You just sort of went along in, with the flow, perhaps. Well, the subject matter was more open, too, wasn't it? I mean, it seemed to me more like spaces that you know, almost chosen at random or something that somebody would see by chance 
And as you said, yes. you know, with this interior, exterior, um, you know, uh, tension. But yeah. whereas this new work is, obvi- is very much calculated, and that's not necessarily bad, but I mean, it's like, it's a project. It's definitely all of a piece. And more deliberated and, and more um, more demonstrative in, in a way. Yes, exactly. That right. You so that gives you, it, yeah. I mean, that's something that I think is going to come up on, in other discussions tonight is like, is the role of narrative in work, you know, whatever the narrative may be. Mm-hmm. And if that, for me, if that kind of overpowers the, the, the qualities of whatever they are, sensuous qualities or the qualities of texture and construction and materials and how something mm-hmm. is made, um, then I find it less interesting. And that's what was happening to me. Uh-huh. Although I saw this exhibition twice, I have to say. And the yes. first time, I really you know, felt like, oh, I'm just not getting this. And the second time, I looked at it much harder. And then that's when I, you know, she is obviously very talented. So you see that coming through, and I feel like her, her architecture is very impressive and how she can construct, like this one that's a pile of magazines and books. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's yes. just, that's really beautiful. And I think she, there's not many artists who can do something like that. Yeah, I was rather taken aback by Chris feeling that they're not invested as, as painting. or It seemed the draftsmanship within them was quite stunning, especially, um, actually, especially the, the the, the ceremony painting that, that Chris cited. But um, Martha, where do you stand on the actual technique? Do you think she's... I think she's a great painter, but better close up than far away. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of situation where you walk in and you're like, oh, brother, you know, I mean... And that has something to do with the installation, I felt like. Yeah. All, we've all been kind of saying in different ways, you know, this is so grand... I mean, maybe if each of those paintings had been in its own little space, it might have been more effective. Yeah, and or the other way around, if they were all cramped together a little bit more and more of a coziness. And I, I mean, the thing is, you know, if you spend a lot of time going to galleries too, you, you you know, you're like, this is the gallery of, you know, and you have this other catalog in your head. So I'm kind of thinking of like Marcel Zama and things like that. And and they're just kind of like trying to be a mega gallery, but still be like kind of weird. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's just like, you know, you got to pick one or the other guys because, you know, you can't, you can't be the like fringe weird gallery and then also, um, you know, be a sort of like baby MoMA, you know. So for me, that is part of a little bit of the problem is that they're trying to kind of put this out there is, you know, my favorite word, transgressive. And it just is not working for me. But as I said, when, you know, you, I thought I had some pictures. I didn't actually take pictures of that show. But some of these other um, kind of quieter paintings where you could just sort of sit there and you're like, that, wow, she really, you know, just the application. Yeah, she's, she's just great. So, you know, um, Sometimes it's that problem of, of, you know, a subject kind of like a little bit of a problem of a fit, just what you identified in the beginning, that she's sort of in transition and um, from my perspective, making a little bit of a misstep. And I don't know, this as a feminist painting, that's always, of course, a little bit touchy for me too, because I'm like, oh, do I want to... You know, do I have to get on board with this feminine, this feminism? This just doesn't feel like feminism to me. But 
you know. Because, um, because in part, because well, actually, the the ceremony is is one of the few paintings. Just to remind you, it's with it's one woman in sort of black yoga pants and a, and another in a kind of uh, more of a sort of corset type. Um, well, yes, uh, and um, uh, uh, but even that, that's actually the most contemporary looking um, image in the show, and the uh, sartorially, it's perhaps as recent as the 80s, but it could be any time, actually in the 20th century, the, the figure on the right at least. It has a sort of visitation-like um, structure to it of, uh, you know, the, the, the New Testament story. But, but most of the imagery seems to be very, uh, is, is historical. It's, it's, um, it's 19th century, it's Rococo through early modernism, um, uh, early modernity, I'm, I'm sorry, I mean to say, um, and and so it seems to be therefore telling some sort of story and and tapping nostalgia, and um, I wonder what the story is and what the nostalgia is about, or, or is it just it, it, it's um, one one talks about the space having resonances from the rest of the catalogue, as it were. Um, you know, it's hard to be in that space and not have. Uh, Zama and Rausch and Toymans and uh, uh, um, uh, et al. in 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 the mind, and it, it begins to have um, a sense of history lessons being very important to the the Zwerner Gallery stable. Um, it, did, did it come across as being did, what what Chris did you make of the the historicity of these of these images? Um, I sort of felt it a little bit. Um, like I said, I only saw uh, one room, and it was the large room. It was really, really dark. Um, you walked in, and uh, I want to say to right directly but to the back, there was the big painting called Hangman, which was, a, you know, it was a human being, human figure, but you couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman. It may, you know, it was kind of uh, ambiguous. Um, and then to the In a sort of 18th century costume. Like yeah, almost yeah. like a kind of a circus, kind of like a, a trampoline artist. I, that was kind of feel like that was like a kind of circus, kind of feel 18th, 19th century circus. And then to the left, there was a painting with a woman with like the bonnet on it, uh, with her on her head, a black bonnet. And with that painting, I kind of thought of um, uh, Cather, uh, old pioneers, just kind of popped in my head um, when I saw it. So there was a, there was a kind of brief uh, moment where through looking, I kind of thought about the, the uh, 19th century, late 19th, mid late 19th century, um, which is you know, very complicated uh, for me to, me to address um, in terms of what that imagery means now and what kind of nostalgia uh, can be attributed to it. Um, but, but ultimately what I felt, you know, it, and I should, I should also qualify um, my statement about her skills as, as a painter. Um, again, I looked at those paintings in an essentially black room. I mean, and it wasn't like the Christophele black room. It was a dimly, dramatically dimly lit room. Um, and I, you know, I came up to a couple of paintings, but the content was not what it, I, I wasn't drawn to it enough to pay much attention to what was happening with the painting. And the painting wasn't breaking uh, breaking through uh, that that kind of fourth wall of expectation that would make me look at the painting much closer. And this is more a general co comment. You know, there's 
you know, there's good painting and there's, you know, there's technically good painting and technically bad painting. And, but I think the enjoyment of, of painting has something to do uh, with both what's there, um, what you bring to it as a, as a viewer, what you, um, what your uh, potential, the, the potential expectations that you as an artist or painter uh, might have um, as a result of producing a, a work, a specific work or a specific, specific type of work. Um, and I just, you know, just because of all of the ambient interference, the scale of the room, the lighting, um, the spareness of the image content, all of that stuff was really off-putting for me because I did not sense that there was going to be a payoff for me to spend any time in that room. All right, right, yeah. And that's fair enough. I, I do feel, uh, I, I should say that, you know, I, I feel that the room you did see was the corollary room and that the the more substantial room was... It was the project room. It was, it was the project but room. But it was enormous. It was right? enormous, it's yeah. Like <laughs> the Uber project it's room. All yes. enormous. It's a, a like a yes. A, Can I just a say turbine a, hall of the Zwerner Gallery? Yeah. Yes. Can I just say about the nostalgia? That's the perfect yes. word for it. But the thing is that nostalgia sets up a sort of expectation, and that is what something with somebody like John Curran, whatever you feel about him, he does it, in my opinion, exceptionally well. The person who I absolutely love, who these reminded me of, who's mining a, a similar era, particularly the 30s stuff, is Nicole Eisenman, you know? And so you go and you see that work. I mean, again, we're just sitting here with this image in front of us, so I'm just like ruminating on this particular one. But um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have to know about that imagery specifically to experience it in the present. Whereas this, it was sort of like, eh, it's not quite working. Maybe there's some Swedish thing I don't know about, you know, like, you know, women's lib in Sweden, you know, or something. So I don't know. I just, um, I, what can you say? The other thing is, is um, you know, in my mind, she always crosses over a little with the Leipzig painters, too. And so they always have you know, this, uh, the kind of like sort of, you know, wacky juxtapositions of, you know, history with some kind of like, you know, whatever Prussian soldier flying in from the mm -hmm. background or something like that. And, and I, there's a lot of that. I mean, it's funny. It is, you know, they are really trying to become the surrealist gallery, I guess. So I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, we are reviewing Anderson, not Zwerner. So, but I mean, it, yeah. it is it is fair, however, there yeah, to, to... I was, when, I guess the second time I went to see it, Kiki Smith was also there, and I saw her pondering them very closely. And then I saw a connection. I, could, I was sort of seeing it through her eyes for a minute, and I could see that she was kind of fascinated both by like, how did she do that? How did she make that lacquer desk look exactly like a lacquer desk? But also I think the imagery and the subject matter maybe, it made it more interesting to me to just to see it through her eyes and her fascinations with, you know, colonial life in the United States. And this was whatever period this was, I'm not sure, that Mama Anderson's working with, but it's uh, equally remote apparently from the present day which to me on, on the face of it, you know, a priori would make it less interesting. I was like, well, why are you painting some, something about that time instead of about the present? But then seeing it differently, I could see how 
for other people, that could be really fascinating. Well, there is a mythological, there's a mythological aspect, I think, to what she's, uh, to her project. Um, and, and that um, it is, uh, it's, it's pastness is not, it's her past, it, uh, Neo Rausch's and Luke Toyman's pastness is political. And whereas I think that um, Zama and uh, Mama Anderson and Joachim Nordstrom's pastness is more sort of mythopoeic. It's a kind of fairy tale um, pastness. And um, I, I, what, what also struck me is that I saw one of my, my, my first proper look at both Merlin James and Mama Anderson was en route to the outsider art fair. And in fact, I was taking students around and I was saying, here we have two consummate insider artists, and yet let's ask questions about how they plastically construct space and uh, how they deal with imagery and what the sort of psychological incentives are of, of the, both these artists en route to, from these insider artists, to looking at supposedly, I mean, a dubious category anyway, outsider art. And what struck me with uh, Anderson's focus on individual pieces of furniture and, and um, busts and uh, bustiers and, and, and ceramic sculptures and things that, the, the, that populate uh, these, these images with a, um, a stronger but uh, I mean, a more solid and, and a more frontal kind of ground compared to her diffuse landscape passworks is that actually uh, I, I felt them to be channeling de Chirico quite a lot. I felt that um, that they they really have a kind of pittura metaphysica quality about uh, some some intense sort of meaning um, and at and at the same time dislocation inhabiting uh, individual objects depicted. Chris, let's take us take us into the next show then. And is 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 Merlin James also? Um, were you also a virgin Merlin Jamesian, or is, no, is he uh, no, someone no. you've been following? Yes. No, I I, uh, I worked as a as an art handler at Sakuma Jenkins and Company for three or four years. Um, so most of uh, the the artists there, and uh, James included, I've handled their work and spent uh, a substantial amount of time watching, looking at what they what they do. And over the holidays, um, I listened to some lectures uh, uh, by Merlin James without knowing you hadn't contacted me yet right. about this. Um, I just, you know, I think he's a, a really interesting painter. Um, you know, this one of the things that I noticed, let me start off by saying I, I like him as a painter. Um, he's one of my, one of the people I really just enjoy as a, as a thinker in, in the history of painting in the contemporary um, assessment of like, what constitutes uh, an intellect in painting. Um, the only issue that I had with it, um, and I'll say that, that, that because this, I'll share this issue because most of what I have to say is not um, negatively critical, um, is that over the years, and I think it's something that just happens to artists in general, um, once they have a certain amount of support, um, that the paintings just kind of have stayed the same. Uh, uh, there's been a refinement of his uh, original project, um, but at the same time, and it's a very, you know, it's a very, I think it's a smart and, and valuable and, uh, um, and still generative, uh, but in terms of looking at it, I got it. 
And uh, I think I was more impressed with the paintings that, or more interested in the paintings that were turned um, backside forward or that he had stretched. Um, he stretched one of the one sunset, he stretched uh, nylon, um, like mm. uh, hosiery mm. over it. Yeah. Um, I thought it was, as, in terms of dealing with color, it was fantastic. Um, and I always love it when painters use um, materials that aren't paint in order to index color and texture. Um, so I think there's something there. Um, I also really love the fact that there were so many paintings there. Um, there, you know, the room was filled. Um, you know, it was in, in spite of the, the kind of uh, cavernous uh, space that Sycamore Jenkins is, um, the paintings felt cozy and mm -hmm. um, and, mm -hmm. and nice. So I, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I can tell you more about what I like. Yeah, we'll come back to you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, Vincent. Um, uh, Chris mentions the the sensation of Merlin's Merlin James's um, uh, striking consistency, which I think is reinforced for us by the fact that almost every show he does has some kind of retrospective aspect to it. He sort of picks from the palette of his whole oeuvre with each new manifestation. But what what has always struck me, and I've followed his work since uh, since the the early 1990s, is that um, even when he is drawing from older work, um, uh, and, and even though almost all his painterly concerns were there with him um, as, a, as a graduate student already, he somehow, with each show, changes the, turns a leaf, changes, uh, moves into a new chapter um, with new emphases and, and, and with, with certain departures. And, um, it struck me that this was actually formally, uh, for him, like um, a rather bold exhibition of new ventures, uh, although they're not totally new. I mean, there's the, uh, Chris has described some of them, there's the, the inversion, uh, looking at the backside, seemingly, of, of the canvas. There's uh, the departure in actually having eschewed frames for most of his career, of making a kind of almost Hodgkin-esque fetish sometimes out of the frame. And then there's this weird, I don't know how to describe it, this bowing in uh, of the sides. So, uh, and then there's, uh, and then there's uh, nylon and then there's some sex. So there's uh, lots of new things um, while still being Merlin James. Uh, did this seem to be a transitional or a, a innovative show to you? Or um, did you feel that you were on very secure um, territory with Merlin James? Uh, no, just, he, you know, he's like in the groove. He's he's a different kind of artist. He's just, uh, I think he, he, I could compare him to Mirandi. It's like he's a great artist. He does what he does. It's there are changes, but they're not radical departures. But for me, I'm not, you know, I don't look for radical departures in every artist. I mean, I see what they do, and for him, it's. Um, you know, you brought up the question of scale before with Mama Anderson, and that's obviously a big question with Merlin James because you go into the show and you know whereas in her exhibition okay it was in in that gallery um, the, the works actually looked kind of dwarfed to me um, in Merlin James's show you go in and you think oh this is a bunch of small paintings but after you're there you adapt to the scale and the scale is very appropriate it feels very specific and carefully chosen basically each work is different in, in size and scale. They're, slight, they're, they're kind of manicured and totally, um, you know, 
ex explicitly chosen the, the details. And what you were mentioning about the Boeing, uh, I think, is also, um, I guess he's done it before, I, I read, in the 80s, but this is a, a new um, kind of tweak, I guess. Like, he does a lot of tweaking to the things that he's, uh, that, you know, are familiar in his work. But I just wanted to say in the, the aspect of seeing the works, like supposedly or apparently the backs of works, um, which he's done before, I felt that they were much more successful in this exhibition. And I think it was because of the use of that nylon or fabric, whatever it was, it made it, it gave it much more of a depth. And so it, it became an, more of an image rather than what could have been perceived as a gimmick, like, oh, well, this is, or, you know, or just an idea, the back of a, of a, of a painting. But I find that I, you know, once I adapt to the work, I've, it's some of the most interesting painting of contemporary painting that I can find to look at. Right. Is that a verdict you'd share, Martha? Yeah, I'm crazy about his painting. I just love it. I pitched it for this review panel. David sends us a bunch of stuff, and I was like, Merlin James. You and three other people, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I just love it. And um, um, yeah, no, I'm a little stuck on like whether people should change or not. I don't know. I, <laughs> who knows? I just want to go in and, and see a show and be kind of knocked out. And with this one, I, you know, I mean, it, I don't really have, haven't seen a show of his and thought like, oh, yeah, no. I'm always, there's always something. Um, and when we were talking about history with the, uh, uh, with Mama Anderson, and somehow, you know, I mean, I've studied a lot of art history, so I'm a little bit sensitive about it. But the thing is that all painting is art historical. I mean, there's just no way around it. And he does such a great job. I mean, just sort of you'd go through and you'd have these little surprises. There's one that reminds me so much of James Enzer, but it, you would never, you know, actually say, oh, well, he was whatever. But if you've kind of, yeah, it's this one called Willow. There are other ones that have these kind of Whistler touches. Some remind me of um, Redon, you know, so this weird symbolist quality. Others, like one of the ones you, sh I think you showed it, it's called Marine Painting, and it's got this central thing. It's actually a palette and some brushes, but it reminds me of like a Bonnard still life. It's just, that's the way that you, you know, you have that sensation of standing in front of the painting and being like, they had that same feeling when they were at, you know, whatever, looking at Enzer, that you're getting it sort of, you know, repeated back to you. And that's what the real joy of this kind of painting. A couple of other things I love, you know, he, the, yeah, the holes in the canvas thing, that's kind of a signature of his. But it's just great, some of them, where you look and it's like it's been worn away and then you think it's the wall, but then, you know, he's got like another piece of burlap. The other thing, um, there are these little spots, you, you know, maybe you can see it on my phone, where it looks like a... Um, you can see in the back row, can you? Yeah, where it's kind of like... Um, uh, actually, let's, let's do what critics are supposed to, which is describe. Um, um, oh, we're I'm talking tired. about a painting. Oh, okay, okay you're tired, so I'll do, it, I'll do it for you. No, I'm it's a do it. It's a landscape no, painting no, 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 that no, no, would no. evoke it's William not... Nicholson, but at the bottom there's a strip. Yeah, but the strip look, is, and here's what the strip is, that you don't do that in painting. That's a photography thing. Exactly. So he's put the color strip, strip from photography, except it's not, you know, um, RGB or any of that. So it's just, it's just cool, you know? You're like, in the same way, 
See? They want to see it. So in the this same is a recording way, nightmare. I mean, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, they can go online because it exists. We will make sure the image is on the page the, with, the, the, with other, the podcast. It, yes. Well, we've described it. There, you we've know, done the job. It's, if you imagine a William Nicholson bottom. landscape with of 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 hills that are heading towards the ocean, and then disconcertingly, somewhat, a small strip at the very bottom of the canvas breaks with the tonal, atmospheric quality of the paint to give us something that's more like a conceptual rendition of a color test. David and I always argue on panels, and now we're competing over description. Yeah, here's an artist where every, all four people on the panel adore the painter, and we're, and even, and we're still managing to have an argument. Right. Um, the other thing I just want to point out, if you ever teach, you know, art writing or art, whatever art history, you know, you always tell your students, like, look at that checklist. So, for instance, with because it's just there's something there are funny, lots of funny things. So, for instance, with the Mama Anderson, where it says oil on panel, usually when you see oil on panel, it means it's a nice panel, you know, so it's a fancy maple sanded down and so that felt like a trick when I looked at it I was like oh, oil on panel that's oil on plywood so there's a kind of verbal trick all of the works here say acrylic on canvas and so when you hit those that have this kind of nylon thing I literally was like am, am I looking at the same thing so he he's there's a kind of trick there where he's sort of withholding information from you if you wanted it you know if you wanted to go by the checklist so it's kind of like a painter being like I'm not going to tell you just look at that you know and you tell me what you see and you're like I don't see acrylic on canvas but okay so I don't know I I'm I, that's I think that's all I had to say but I it's kind of amazing that it is acrylic because I usually think of you know what I like is oil painting and then I love these paintings and then I, I too looked at the checklist and I said wait a minute this is acrylic, on canvas you know how does he get those effects out of acrylic? Incredibly tactile. Yeah, I, I, I this is something I was aware of right from the get go with with um, Merlin. I th in the interest of full disclosure, I. Um, in, I live with his work as well as uh, writing about it uh, and curating exhibitions of it. Um, um, that he's, he likes acrylic, I think, because of its resistance. That um, it's, the, the extraordinary thing with Merlin James is that they, they seem like sort of, they seem effortless, casual, um, uh, relaxed sort of paintings, but at the same time, um, they are sort of anxious objects in Harold Rosenberg's sense. They're constantly, um, you know, unaware. They're, they're constantly anxious about their own identity. They, they, they instill in you, the viewer, questions rather than giving you painterly answers. And um, for him, I think acrylic is about um, oil being too nice and too easy and f being forced to get... Uh, to be forced to, to, to get something that approximates the pleasures that this person has with the whole history of oil painting, uh, but to do it in acrylic is a way of almost a sort of self-flagellatory way of saying, I am not a postmodernist, but I'm in the postmodern era. Well, it's of his time, but it also could be in a way, a you know, a challenge to himself or a way of imposing an obstacle similar to how de Kooning would, you know, 
complicate the things that he could do with ease. Right, right. All the way Modigliani would tie his uh, dominant hand behind his back and force himself to work with the non-dominant hand um, to, to frustrate facility. Yes. But then, of course, he, he gets and achieves, uh, I think, immense facility, uh, a sort of oiliness and acrylic. I mean, so many artists give us a kind of plastic quality despite using the most fancy oils. Um, what, do you, what do you, as somebody who's actually handled the, the paintings, uh, uh, Chris, and, and presumably installed, what's your feeling towards the materiality uh, in Merlin James? Um, well, I wrote a couple, couple notes down. Um, one of the things that uh, they're, they're uh, in the quirkiest way, they're kind of, they're lapidarian paintings. Like, and I have a, 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 again, I should, you know, full disclosure, I have a really deep love for paintings that are smaller than three feet. Um, I, I, I prefer them um, for the most part. And so I, there, there's an affection there for just that gesture. Um, not talking about the materiality of the paintings directly, one of the things that I said to Vincent, because we uh, just went to look at some work just in the neighborhood and, um, and met up there. I said that, um, and I just wrote this, this note, that he is not afraid to be a dilettante or to, to give a nod to the dilettante. He also is, um, as far as I can tell, not afraid of uh, the amateur. And, the, and, and in some ways, there's this, this kind of nod to um, the, the daily practice of the, bad, or of the so-called bad or unknown painter who is frustrated with himself constantly questioning himself and yet kind of plows forward and through that plowing forward as a painter develops um, a language and a style and a vocabulary and and basically creates a world um, and the thing that's interesting to me about the the kind of world um, in painting um, that is specific to just James as far as as far as I'm interested in talking about it um, that there's um, you can see him kind of relishing all of the moves that he makes, and um, and he even, in some ways, I, I feel like he uh, makes fun of himself, like the bowed canvases. I mean, usually you get bowing from changes of weather and poor storage and that sort of thing. Um, and I'm sure at some point in his practice, he probably found a canvas that was bowed and shitty and decided to paint on it. and really liked the 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 presence of uh, of, a, of a painting that is like breathing with the weather and with the changes of temperature in the house and and um or the studio or wherever and then in the exhibition he turns one of the paintings around that has been consciously warped and you actually see the construction that makes them warp so he basically has um i wish we could had a chalkboard or something but there's, he basically draws blocks, I and mean, he cut out blocks that are large on this side, and they descend, and then they get bigger like that. And then he nails the, the side of the stretcher board to, to it, the side of the stretcher bar. So it bows with it. So it's like a kind of architectural yeah. kind of carpentry move. It's a hard-won sloppiness. And yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Um, and he does that on all four sides. And so there's like this. At a certain point, he's quoting himself. He's kind of making fun of himself, and then like he's appropriating from from the history, from the very the personal history of his practice, and like all of those moves are so insular and introverted, and um, and poetic, and um, you know it's uh, oh, 
Um, it is one of the things that is rare, I think, in contemporary art, um, and particularly rare to be shown at a, at a level at which, in a, in a gallery that functions at the level at which uh, Brent and, Mike, and Michael function at, it's rare to, to see artists who are um, completely dedicated to themselves, you know, and very interested, you know, and not afraid of, um, of their limitations and uh, of their interest. Um, the market be damned, um, uh, you know, what, what's happening around them be damned. Um, they just do their, do their work. And it, it's, a, it's a very skillful balance, I think, to, um, to grow at your own pace and particularly, I, I don't know his age, but I'm guessing he's around 50. 52. Okay. Um, and to, 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 to accept that 52 is like kind of early, or maybe early mid-career or late emerging. Um, he and I are both 54. 54, exactly. I know, yeah. I know he's a phone at same age. So. And realize, you know, being comfortable with the fact that, okay, so the last 10 or 15 years show this slow growth, but then there are potentially another 30 yeah. or 40. And so it doesn't, you know, that you get to see him kind of um, expansively treat a set of ideas yeah. um, over and over again. And I just, I like that. Yeah, the holes in the camp. Uh, I remember once uh, years ago, uh, uh, hear, overhearing somebody at one of his openings say, oh, gee, the, when it was, when, in fact, it was the first show where we saw a lot of holes in, in, in his canvases. And, and somebody said, oh, it's typical Merlin. They, their paintings, they arrive ready damaged. And um, uh, and there's, there is that mystique almost in his work that these are sort of um, forlorn paintings. These are paintings that could have been found in the attic or something of a, of a, a very eccentric Sunday painter. I mean, it's, it's interesting that he then, as an art sort of connoisseur, uh, latches onto figures who are marginal or overlooked or eccentric um, uh, throughout um, the, the history of art, but I mean, his his obsession for several years now has been Serge Shashun, the great unknown Russian Dadaist of about 1922 or something. So, um, and and but but he, there's nothing tongue in cheek about this uh, this infatuation. Um, it's it's something very genuine. And it, actually, you know, you say market be damned, Chris. It's uh, I, I feel. We, we need to move on, and that's, that's what we should, be, should have said about Merlin James. And I don't, don't want to open a can of worms and get into a whole discussion that I always try to keep out of the review panel when people mention prices, but I, was just, I just saw a, a news item uh, yesterday about, uh, uh, this afternoon, about, um, I won't mention his name, but an artist who's um, dived at auction and, and talking about Actually, it's a, it's a piece in the Times, so you can go and see it. Um, it's it's an, art, an artist who has a, a hugely expensive uh, uh, studio practice, uh, but, but uh, after his sort of 15 minutes or whatever, he's, um, his works went for a shameful, uh, scandalous, mere $23,000 at auction. And uh, that's about uh, the highest you could pay, or about the average, I think, for a, for a Merlin James. So, and that's at retail. So... It's, there's something quite extraordinary about the fact that you can have four quite diverse critics, and it's very rare on the review panel for have, basically to have a love-in. Uh, for, for, there's usually some debate, right? There's usually some uh, caveats, and, uh, and yet... Um, well, I've found it, it's debate... The, the market is in one place, and criticism is in another, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, we're not having much debate here, but I have found debate when I've tried to teach Merle and James. Right. Um, well, particularly his criticism, because he's very prolific as a critic as well. And uh, this piece I love, I read it over and over, it's called The Non-Existence of Art Criticism. <laughs> and I feel like it's not accessible, so I think I'm going to ask him if I can put it online, or maybe he has it put it online himself. But um, yeah, he, he, in this class I was teaching at SVA, uh, he was, and I somehow thought that everyone was just going to think he was marvelous. But they, in fact, thought that he was a re reactionary. Yes. And because he has a thing in here which he talks about, which is against literalism. And that covers a broad spectrum of things that he sees in, in contemporary art. But it boils down to that the work of art should have something left over that's not instantaneously understood. And I find that a lot with you know seeing his work, even though I know it quite well, like the punctures, for example. Like I don't, I'm, I'm still not sure why they're there. And I feel like, again, a priori, I wouldn't like that. It would seem like a trick. But I don't have that reaction. Right. Yeah, I, I think between a painter and somebody who has a a practice also as a critic. The critic is obviously going to have some followers and some dissenters. I don't think any critic can really get everyone behind um, a radical critique of of our lovely art world. But um, yeah, I just throw out that interesting example of how there can be some relative consensus. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, among critics who are enthusiastic about an artist and um, no connection to collector or dealer, or collector interest, seemingly. But um, let's hear, our, hear comments from the audience at this stage on the first two shows we've looked at, Mamma Anderson and Merlin James. And um, if possible, can we maybe do it in, in that order? So hold back on James for the moment. Would anyone like to, to share with us some, uh, some reaction to... Um, the discussion or to their own reaction to the shows, uh, to the show of uh, Mama Anderson. Yes. Just curious if you had any sort of reaction to the fact that her mural was going to be destroyed at the end of the show. And if that, any of you, and if that impacted or would impact how you saw it. I didn't even know that. I'm yeah. delighted to hear it. Um, but, um, <laughs> well. <laughs> Oops. Uh, well, no. No, uh, I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, all right. Like, no, what Martha was going to say is, do, do we have to wait to the end of the show? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no. <laughs> no, no. Uh, we didn't really get into it, but the, the, the blow-up of scale, I felt, undermined what she'd achieved in the paintings that I liked very much in the, in the principal gallery. Uh, it's, 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 and especially actually having one of the regular scaled paintings in the space of the humongous uh, mural, um, it seemed to present something conceptually that it, it almost seemed that the artist herself didn't understand. So, I didn't even know that, but that sounds gimmicky to me. Why? Someone wants to buy it, and you were willing to show it. I'm destroying this. Okay. I don't think it makes any difference. I mean, it wouldn't make me any difference one way or the other. Wouldn't make any difference that it's going to be destroyed. Yes. Knowing that it was, I didn't, I did not know that it was going to be destroyed. But now that you say it, it makes it even sound worse. I mean, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. yes. 
It's like the old joke about the Catskills, you know, the, the food's inedible in such small portions, you know, so the, the, the murals a failure and it's not going to last, you know. Well. I mean, again, it almost sounds like a kind of Squirner thing, like, you know, we're very expensive, but we're actually going to destroy that. It's like, go ahead. We don't care. Um, but that's just, you know, that's just a few art critics. I don't know. Did you think it, it were, were you kind of like, oh, my gosh. Well, it was funny. Once I knew that, it actually, I started thinking of sand paintings. And, oh, yes. right. and yeah. sort of the Tibetan tradition, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. the tradition of Tibetan sand paintings, which, you know, sort of um, evoke so much history, and then they're destroyed. And that was just sort of an overlay for me in terms of seeing that. But I think there's kind of a, uh, you know, site-specific work has that inherent in it, and sometimes it's very provocative, and it, it really adds to it. And you know, there's a Solowit installation right now. It's a Carl Andre sculpture in Solowit wall paintings at Paula Cooper. That's just like an amazing installation. You feel like it should be there forever, but it's not going to be there forever. And that, in that case, you do feel, but it's part of the concept of it that it is going to go away in time. And this it just seemed kind of arbitrary, that was my feeling. I mean, just one more thing. There's so much work that was programmed to not you know, exist and then was made to exist you know, forever, supposedly. So I mean, Duchamp or anything. You know, these things were not made to last forever. So I, I don't know. Maybe I'd sort of have the reverse where more people should have honored that, you know? Like once you learn like, well, what about, you know, you're teaching performance or something and you're like, you know, Gagosian bought like uh, all this paraphernalia that Chris Burden used in his graduate school performances. Really? Mm -hmm. The lock, you know, <laughs> the whole bit. So it, 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 I mean, that's just a whole longer thing. I don't yeah. know. I'm, I'm reminded of Michael Landy who had a, a project once. We had this uh, wonderful kind of skip and you could take your art there and it would be destroyed. So for, um, um, but uh, it wasn't big enough, I don't think for, uh, uh, the Mama Anderson uh, murals, anyway. I think there were some hands went there, and yes. Did, did you get the sense at all from the Mama Anderson that it was like a, a historical museum? I mean, it seemed to me that um, the whole piece was about taking pieces from um, a museum, especially a, a museum of women's artifacts, and making icons of those items. I mean, I found such charm in that idea. Um, and charm in the images, and especially because they're so feminine, and it's so unusual for artists to make an icon out of something that we consider images. For example, the pieces of clothing um, in the bodices, and then again, in the um, there was a piece in the back with um, d different, I don't know, it was different pieces of clothing as though they were hung up. And I thought it was interesting, too, that in both of those, um, the one with the bodices, it very it was hard to see, but it looked as though they were hung up, as though they were suspended. And to me, that also made it seem like it was something important. It was hung like a piece of art. Um, and so the, that, the idea of taking those images and um, sort of putting them on a pedestal, to me, was, was sort of feminist and um, extremely interesting. And just her, the, the way that she mixes um, things that are just gorgeously rendered and, and so almost photorealistic um, with just a few brushstrokes and that against, against things 
almost sometimes in the same painting that are um, uh, like uh, just an idea of a of um, uh, of a form. So you have this yes. incredible feel of realism in the same painting with something that's just um, uh, a few dots. Right. And I just find that lovely and charming. Fantastic. Thank you very much. No, I'm, I'm really pleased to have taken a, a very, very <laughs> affirm, um, to, to take a comment that was very supportive of that show. Um, I, was, I would take this moment uh, opportunity to mention that there are some seats in the front, so unless you actually enjoy it and it's in part of your daily exercise, um, if you are perched on a windowsill or, or leaning on the back of the uh, um, room, uh, don't, don't feel ostracized. There is, there is a place for you to sit. I think this is a good moment if you want to find a seat. So Merlin James, any, any feelings from the um, audience on the subject of Merlin James's show or uh, are, are four peons enough for one evening? I don't know. Uh, um, any, any comments on, yes, there is at the back of the hall um, on Merlin James. Hi, uh, interesting panel. And full disclosure, I, um, like Chris, I'm a freelance art handler and worked on the current Merlin James show. And uh, I like everything the panel's been saying about his work, and especially Chris, because he, like I, have seen the work up close from the back, sideways, upside down, because we've handled it and uh, put it on the walls. And um, I've seen it grow, and Chris mentioned the slow development in the work, or somebody did, which I agree with. And um, the, the, new, the work that's transparent and on a nylon, I think, uh, when it, it's fairly new development. Um, I've seen it in the gallery for about four or five years, but it, it's grown and expanded, uh, all under three feet, as Chris mentioned, but still there's this expansion in it, and um, which I enjoyed a lot. The gallery, you know, I'll just let you know, didn't quite know what to make of them when they first appeared. And, um, but the artists who, worked in the who work in the gallery kind of saw it immediately for, you know, the important work that, that it really is. And there's, um, in Merlin's craft in the studio, he makes these tiny little uh, houses out of wood, and they started to appear on the back of the stretches and the transparent pieces and on the tops of the stretches. So just sitting there, some aren't glued on, some are, but the ones you can see from the back through the transparent layers have a, a life, you know, a quality that is really unusual. And so that there's that interaction between the life behind the transparent surface and the life on the surface of the transparent, which has its own color. So there's that incredible interaction between them, which I enjoyed a lot by looking at them. And it was a pleasure to work on the show. And he is an interesting, fascinating person to talk with. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, anybody else um, at the stage on, on uh, Merlin James? Um, somebody taking issue? Somebody want to sort of add a cautionary note? Uh, uh, our over-enthusiasm, or is there some key aspect that we've um, missed in our sort of pointless lovings? Yes? Uh, I have a question that's going to sound like a snotty question, but it's, it's actually an authentic question, which was, so take it that way, or take it snotty, whatever. But um, hearing the descriptions of seeing the shows, uh, I've been thinking a lot about time and how long it takes to look at something. And so there seemed like this gradient between like, I didn't have, I didn't even 
get close enough to the painting to look at it. I was turned off by the room. To obviously very deep looking, engaged looking that happened with certain Mar uh, Merlin James paintings. And like, I'm just interested in that as a situation. Like how, how long do you look at things and how do they solicit that distinction between like not going close enough to see if it was painted well or not to like seeing the tiny house on the things and how does that I mean do you see any trend in like the way a gallery functions or a painting looks to make that happen yeah do do we as critics have a sort of strict rule okay we everyone is like a trade union the, the artist is entitled to 17.2 minutes uh, per show or is it does the art itself, uh, as it were, dictate the time it gets? Well, Martha, I don't think anyone on the panel sees more art than you do, so um, what would you say? I'm going to hijack that question. That's Jarrett Ernest, if you don't know. He writes for the Brooklyn Rail. He's an amazing critic. And I thought you, I was, as we were talking about Mama Anderson, I was like, he's going to like that Mama Anderson. <laughs> did, you, did you like it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I saw that big woman and I thought, you know, well, there's a way you, you could mic, sort of spin like, that big, that gigantic woman and maybe you would make me like it. So, I mean, I, I, I wanted to address that question because okay. I think, I mean, I think for, for everyone at the, just the, what basically what you're talking about is, and you're talking about a very specific a aspect of the context in which you uh, digest art, right? And time is, a, I think, a, is a huge component with that. I mean, one of the things about Merlin's work, Merlin James's work, as Gary, who's the art handler back there, fellow art handler, um, uh, mentioned, is that we've had lots of, we've had years with with James's work. Like we've, like, I mean, before working there and working with it, I don't work there anymore, but. You know, I've spent a ton of time really enjoying the work. So going to see the show, there are certain moves and certain things that are happening that I'm really familiar with, and I and I'm versed enough to to make an assessment because of in a short amount of time. I think Vincent and I were there for maybe 25 minutes, 30 minutes, and he he had been there before. Uh, he was at the opening, I guess. You know, Mama Anderson. Again, I, I, I speak at a disadvantage because I didn't see both rooms. It wasn't a matter of me coming in and just kind of zooming around. It was more there was pretension in it because of the, the lighting and the, the amount of space dedicated to work that did not deserve it um, in that particular room. I didn't see the other room. And so quickly what I started to assess is that this is not the best room to actually deal with this artist who I have no experience with. Um, and so that was, and that was, you know, that I came, like I did see, look at the paintings and I saw a quality, you know, a quality, a person who, who had, who understands painting and understands how painting works, but what was there and how it was shown. And then she had the, 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 the disadvantage of me walking down the block to see the Paul Tech show at Alexander Bonin and it just blew her shit away. And, you know, I was thinking about this with the wall painting, like, you know, that it was going to be destroyed and the, the amount of pretense that is, a, that is involved in just think, just even putting that out there, not, not you, but the, the dealer and her as an artist making that choice. And I look at someone like Tech, whose materials were constantly failing, 
There's a room full of gessoed newspaper that's yellowing. Um, the way that he worked at the end of his life, the, you know, one of my favorite Paul Tech quotes is, I'm paraphrasing, I don't make beautiful paintings for ugly rich people. That, that's a person who is, talk about duration and dealing with time and context and, and really situating himself in such a way that he's being digested um, in a more human way and a, and a vast, like in a part, as, part of, as part of the world, not as part of the art world. That's, that's a different thing. And when you see someone who is engaged like that, you do pause and you linger. And I got off a train with bags when I saw these shows and I just put my bags down when I got to, to Paul Tech and just set them at the door and just walked around and looked and you know, it's, it's a different, it's, so, so the element of time is also about the commitment of the artist. If the artist is making work that indicates uh, an investment and commitment to something outside of the market, which these big galleries kind of just represent on many levels, and that's not how an artist should necessarily be judged, but it's part of the viewing experience, you know, then I'm not gonna pay that artist that much attention unless they're really, really good. And they, or they have um, some historical bearing that, you know, they've been vetted over the last 40, 50 years, and, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spend some time with it. You know, so, one more thing is another artist that I will spend a lot of time with who fortunately or unfortunately has big, big support now is Al Taylor. That's someone who I could spend hours with. While, while our able crew are um, uh, trying to get the screen to work properly, um, so many of us did see the show, and uh, it'll be kind of fun for, to do it differently and actually hear this discussion, then whoop, see the images. Uh, that will be, uh, after all, um, you know, Pliny and the ecrastic poets were, were able to write a great deal about stuff that nobody could see, um, and, but they were still interested in it. So let's, um, let's get going. Uh, Titus, Titus Kafar um, in his uh, two exhibitions at Jack Shaman Gallery and uh, of related interest uh, for those of us able to have seen it, um, his exhibition at the Studio Museum of Harlem. Um, Martha Schwendener, um, We've seen two painters in, in Merlin James and uh, Jack, uh, Merlin James and Mama Anderson. We have relative debates about their investment, their qualities. Um, uh, here we have, obviously, um, deep resonant uh, historical political interests and uh, a use of painting at the service of that. Um, 
how do, how do you how do we we we've got a, a big change of register, haven't we, in looking at such material? Mm -hmm. How do you how do you cope with such a, a, a change? Do you do you have a, a different operating system when you would look at an artist like uh, Titus Kafar, or uh, are you able just to look at it as painting and say this works, this doesn't work? Well, well, how do you go about it? It's all the same. <laughs> It's just, here's some painting and here's some painting. Um, and um, is that all you need to know? If I No, know? I want okay. you to use that as a springboard to tell me something um, illuminating about You always ask that so crazy question where I'm like, oh, God. Um, this is my third panel in three days. So for all of you who went to CAA, too, bravo to all of us. Thank you. Um... And that's also a way of putting off the inevitable, which I've um, been dreading since I saw this show. Not these shows. Um, this artist. You know, I've seen his work for a long time, you know, when he was first uh, in the residency program up there, and um, which I don't remember how long ago it was. And there's some things here that are great. The, you know, the politics are obviously really vital, really important. Great ideas, a few even great art, not great. He's an okay, he's okay, you know, but it's just, it's, it's just, mm -mm, not for me. And the thing is that, um, I'll admit, I'm, and I, but I've said it in print many times, I'm not a Kahindi Wiley fan. And this is, there's a lot of Kahindi Wiley here. The person I do like sort of behind all that is Barkley Hendricks, love his work. Um, and so there, you, you can sort of see here, there are moments um, where I'm sort of um, okay with, you know, I'm, uh, some of the Ferguson stuff where there's, you know, the sort of smearing on the canvas and everything. I just, that one I was sort of it was sort of okay or the ones that have the drawing on the canvas and you see a face that sort of has three registers and it kind of goes down and, and you have a sort of um, I guess kind of trying to 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 you know formally reenact disappearance or something of that nature the ones though where he's cutting out and he's redoing the history paintings that I just think is a disaster you know and we've just got great history painters like Carrie James Marshall and people like that. And so I just, I think it's a really, you know, in the same way, you know, not to sort of shove him in the Kahindi Wiley thing, but there's a kind of cheapness to it that it's sort of like, it's a cheap trick sort of thing. And I think there were a lot of people in the gallery when I was there. I think it, it, it's, you know, what I usually call like the large print version of art. I think that it's got a very large print quality that is very readable. And I think it, you know, people can just, you know, it's not like, gee, what is this work? about you know it's so obvious so I'm you know I was hoping not to have to say that but you know and and the Jerome project where he's dipped um, these paintings or applied tar to paintings the materials are obviously extraordinary lo extraordinarily loaded um, this woman was talking about iconicity, you know, it, it, the, he's redoing the icon, putting um, this figure of Jerome and these people who've been um, imprisoned or, sorry, I sort of forgot, were they imprisoned or, yeah. I think they were imprisoned, yeah. 
Um, I wasn't sure if it was worse, if they'd been executed or something like that. There's an incredible pathos to it, you know? I mean, that's, it's a terrible thing. And the tar, we know what that's referring to, but. Um, yeah, Let's, let me ask you then, um, uh, uh, Vincent, having taught uh, Merlin James's uh, critical theory to your uh, uh, incredulous class at SVA, would, uh, would Titus Kafar's um, shredding of uh, a nicely prepared pastiche of an 18th or 19th century painting, or his cutting out of a silhouette and revealing another painting behind it, would that be an instance of uh, what Merlin James would call literalism? I'm not sure. I thought you were going to ask me if my my students how they would react to the subject matter of this no, work or the, the focus politics group that of it. I, I prefer but, uh, to, I'm afraid, as the first port of call. No, I, I, I was interested in the, in the problem of literalism because okay. it seems to me. I mean, with Mama Anderson and Merlin James, uh, whatever your relative feelings about those two artists, they're, they're both doing things. Um, conceptually, and they're both doing things that could be classed as a gimmick with, uh, with painting and support and questioning scale. Um, and and they're both, uh, they both have chops as dispatchers of images in paint. Um, Titus Kafar obviously has a tremendous innate facility with, with drawing and um, uh, in a kind of academic mode. Um, and, and he deploys that to, to, to to make these pastiches of paintings that then get chopped up. So um, I'm, I'm just thinking, um, I'm, I'm just probing whether that's an instance of a kind of literalism, of, of, of like a, a forced theatrical um, um, idea, which is just way bigger than the, the form that, that can contain it. Well, see, I think this is another exa example of having to see something in person because a lot of you know, we have this mode that we're all in where probably our first impression of something is on a computer screen and then hopefully we see it in person. And sometimes we don't. We just, you know, the, our only approach to it is by the screen. So, you know, if I had read about this work uh, and seen it on the screen, I probably would have said that it was literalist and would have thought that its narrative, you know, greatly overpowered its means. However, that was not at all my experience in the, both galleries. I didn't go to the Studio Museum show, although I read about it, but I saw the two Jack Shaneman shows. And I was really captivated by them, I have to say, on, on both levels, like the, the conceptual level and the physical level. Like I really got into how he was, um, you know, transgressing the, the uh, picture plane, like how he, you know, he actually took one in strips and nailed them to the wall, like very carefully and precisely. And I was looking at the nails, there's long nails that, because the strips stuck out at a certain distance from the wall. Uh, that was one example, but each one had a very particular, you know, and then as you said, you know, there's an, he's a master of an academic style, but it's, he uses that you know, in a very effective way, in, as, in a very different way, but someone we mentioned earlier, you mentioned earlier John Curran. I mean, he has this academic facility that he uses for his own ends. And I feel like um, uh, we got video. Oh. <laughs> Should we see it? Yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's let it run in the background and while we talk, I think. To, to, that's fantastic. Thank you very much, Isaac. Thank you, thank you Diana. And, 
Um, let's actually, however, if you don't mind, just carry on with the discussion and people can... can, in, can so the can one we're, with the Jerome project, which there's an example of that just passed in the video, um, the, the tactility of the, of the tar is just is very palpable. In those pieces where the, where the, where the white, you know, well, it's, I'm a little bit behind the video, the last ones with the strokes of white paint over the figures, kind of obliterating them, um, it's something that I always look at when I see strokes of paint, like is there a necessity to that stroke of paint? And oftentimes there's not, it's just decorative or it's just filling in a space. But with his, I didn't feel that. I felt like each stroke had its own um, you know, reason for existing. So those are some of my responses to his work. Yeah. I, found, I found it yeah. really pretty exciting. Cool. Okay, uh, Chris, for you, was the uh, was the um, uh, the the formal and the conceptual uh, nicely aligned with this show and and giving you a powerful resonant experience or or not? Uh, yeah, no, I was just thinking for a second. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's. It, it is difficult to talk about, uh, you know, on some on a very, you know, just on a on a, you know, you know, full, you know, like out there level, just as looking at black artists as a as a black person and and thinking about um, how that participation has manifested into various contemporary artists that that were mentioned earlier. I mean, I think. Um, I talked about his work in relation to Barclay Hendricks to a friend that was the first person I talked about. Um, you know, I think he is suffering from a kind of confusion that uh, Wiley uh, ran up on, ran upon really quickly. Um, and that is, you know, you, you're in a, in a certain kind of bind as a, as a black figurative painter. Um, the black community uh, from, from top to bottom with with some exceptions, um, expects uh, self-representation in painting, and it's extremely valued um, uh, for artists to be able to to render um, drawing. I mean, to be able to draw and to be able to paint realistically is is valued. The conceptual end of things, um, again, there's a kind of colloquialism that I think the art world doesn't always permit uh, with certain um, black artists. I, I can't say the same for other ethnicities, um, but, you know, black American artists. Um, and I think there's just, it's a, and in a nutshell, I think these paintings kind of misfire um, on, on many levels. Um, and at the same time, I have a huge amount of empathy for the effort because I understand the various um, populations of people uh, in and outside of the art world that Hendrick, I mean, uh, that um, Titus Kafar is uh, is talking to and coming from. And another full disclosure, he's from, uh, according to his bio, he's from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, and I was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan. They're very close towns. They have the same area code. And yeah, so don't I, say a word against your fellow Missouri. Yeah. Well, no, no, I wasn't going to say that, but just more to say that, again, the art, you know, it's, and this is my critical point of view, this is my point of view as a so-called critic, is that it's very difficult to divest the social from, from the art. And uh, knowing where he comes from uh, and seeing where, you know, knowing the town that he comes from, the area he comes from, 
his um, he's using he's using his uh, um, his weapon, which is intellect and art, to to fight off certain certain demons. So I have I have a certain empathy for that. But I I think that as art itself, you know, it, it's not it's not it's not what I want. You know, it's not exactly what I want. Can I say something real quickly? Please. You're totally freaking me out because. I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan. I did not, I did not know that about him. Also, I didn't know you were from Grand Rapids. Yeah, so yeah. we've been on things and argued together too. Yeah, yeah. So we, we have good arguing. Um, but I thought what you said was so kind of perfect. I mean, about all these different things, about the kind of difficulty. I think you explained it much better than I could have. But as soon as I heard the Kalamazoo thing, I was like, because, <laughs> of course, you know, the other famous Kalamazoo is Derek Jeter. So um, now I want to know more. I mean, Kalamazoo is a very particular place. So Well, West Michigan is, uh, this is weird. I mean, it, in some ways, you know, we, I don't know if anyone's trained against this, where I, where I teach my students to think about the context of the artist, and you think about the time period that they were working in. You think about the small village that they come from. You know, I when I'm, whenever I teach uh, Kant, which is rare because I'm I'm not a Kantian Kantian uh, theorist or uh, by any stretch. But yeah, I always say to my students, remember this is a guy who lived in a tiny little village, barely left it at all. He's extremely provincial. Um, so when you think about his theories, you have to think about this that as part of listening to, reading and listening to what he has to say. With uh, Kafar, myself, and now Schwindener, um, <laughs> Grand Rapids, Michigan, Southwest Michigan, was uh, kind of infiltrated with uh, Dutch Christian reformed population, mostly of working class background right after the uh, uh, Second world, world, world War. And most of the, the Dutch that moved there um, in order to, to get jobs right away, joined the police force. And West Michigan is, is like basically centered between Detroit and Chicago. And at the time they arrived, had a kind of thriving black jazz scene, which was essentially attacked. Um, and the police and various forces outside the police kind of baited uh, the immigrant population to antagonize this community. Well, now if you're in Grand Rapids, Michigan, or Southwest Michigan, where Jeter's from, and Jeter's half black, half white, not that that matters, um, but when you're in uh, that area, well, let me take a shortcut. In the, I was born in 1970. In 1987 or 88, I had a girlfriend who was from Johannesburg, and we were just off again, on again, and through our conversations, we had the range of conversation. Oh, you're only dating me because you're because I'm white and no, that's not you're cool and blah 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 back and forth. <laughs> and then at one point I you know, we we're sitting around and I said, what made your parents move from Johannesburg to Grand Rapids, Michigan in 1979? And she said, my grand my stepfather said it reminded him the most of South Africa. Now think about that. That's where Titus Kafar is coming from. He was, he's 37, 38 years old. So there's, a, there's an effort to kind of use what he has in order to psychically survive. And you know, in some ways, it's very difficult to use art that way. There's only a few people that have been, that we know of that are very successful. I think Mike Kelly is somebody who's 
successful, but look how it ended for him. Um, it's a very difficult thing to invest. It's, it's almost hard, to, it's almost impossible to negotiate all of that into successful art making. It's very rare. I'm surprised to have heard um, uh, Hendrik's name and even uh, Kahinda Wiley's name mentioned in, in relation to this material. The, the African-American artist who comes straight to my mind is uh, Whitfield Lovell, and, and that's because uh, it seems to me that these are um, uh, powerfully executed but very um, um, pointed um, kind of I want to avoid the, 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 the terms literal or, or theatrical, but it seems that they are um, deployed uh, counters in an argument uh, or, or in um, engendering a kind of um, um, set of reactions rather than uh, a form teased out for implications that might actually then even surprise the maker. And so... Um, uh, not that I'm, in, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Hendrix. I'm a very limited fan, but a fan of, of, uh, of uh, Wiley. But they um, are both working with materials which are so much about uh, the style and, I mean, the stylishness of their subjects, or else they are uh, working, uh, manipulating materials that um, give back. Whereas um, I feel that both, uh, I feel especially with the... Um, uh, Kafar, that the, the materials that is, is, is inert, is passive. It's, um, um, he brings his skill to it. He executes it according to a plan. Um, he does crafty, clever things with his materials, but there's, there's, no, there's nothing that the material is ever going to give back to him. I mean, I think just, just the tank, I mean, I, I did have with, as Vincent did, um, something of a, not quite a revelation, but um, I was so pleased to be seeing it in person. It was exponentially uh, superior in person, but that's, that's because those um, skills were that much more impressive. The way it's like a sardine tin opening uh, to, to reveal one uh, painting under the other. But uh, it seemed like a sort of almost sophomoric um, or a populist idea of, uh, you know, Jefferson and a black woman behind him, and okay, yeah, we may have got that already, but that's, thank you for the reminder sort of thing. Not a startling, it's not exactly like Jasper Johns and opening a cupboard and not, never having guessed that that would be in there, is it? So, um, I yeah. think populist is the, populist is the, is a really good way to think about it. Um, or democratic might be a nicer way of putting it. I mean, it. among, well, among young black, artists and writers, he is extremely popular. I mean, oh. if for people that are 40 or 45 and under, you know, they're like, they love him. And part of it is, you know, I think it's the same problem that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a problem with that any artist that is margin, any particular type of person that's marginalized in any way, shape or form, when they get a hold of an opportunity to, 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 to discourse on that with backing, you know. Um, everyone that empathizes or sympathizes with, with uh, that effort roots them on, cheers them on. So he has tons of black people that love what he, that the fact that he's painting black people and putting them on a wall in Chelsea is a huge deal for a lot of people, just because it's so infrequent. 
Um, and then also there's the artist um, Mike Cloud, who is an artist I, I'm friends with and um, adore and uh, as a person and as, as an artist. He talks often about the dilemma, the dilemma of black self-representation in art that in some ways, uh, we did a panel on, on Ken Johnson a couple of years ago. Ken was actually there, um, and he and Mike got into an exchange. And he said, black self-representational art is like young white, white men at Yale painting abstraction. And, and it was an apt kind of comparison in the sense that the ex expectation for the young white male artist is a kind of intellectually, um, you know, deeply culturally uh, seated um, position on painting, and you, you know, just by virtue of the history that supports your, you participating, you're you're freer, to, uh, you're free from po politics on some level, and so the idea is to go to the purest and ends of that art form and define the the outer limits, whereas for black people and particularly young black men you you've been abandoned and you've been discounted so when you get the opportunity to insert yourself into the history you take that opportunity to do that and that's the expectation based on your history right fascinating i remember there was a time when uh, steve Locke, uh, an artist uh, black artist living in Boston told me his liberal professors were giving him grief as an undergraduate. They're saying, no, 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 look, you're a, you're, a, you're a black man. You need to address issues of color in your work. And uh, he responded by exploring issues of uh, pink and yellow in his work. Um, so, uh, um, but, but, but also actually bringing the gay issue uh, well, yeah, but can can I just say though? Also, I mean, marginal, yes, but the lineage here. Barclay Hendricks has an MFA from Yale. Um, so does Kehinde Wiley, and so does um, Titus Kafar. That's an that's the elite painting, you know, thing. So. What's well, that? Marginal. So, I, 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 yes, I agree with you 100%. But that within the art world, he's coming, uh, coming up with something. Um, it's not just an embrace, um, you know, by black people or whatever. This is a very celebrated artist. And so I, he's hit the wall, you know, as far as I'm concerned. You know, he was very promising. I remember seeing the first, you know, whatever, the studio museum when they have the three, you know, the little well, show with respect, three people. I mean, the, the Studio Museum of Harlem is, a, is an institution devoted to black art. Jack Shaman Gallery, the majority of his stable are black artists from yeah. around the world, but it's he's special. It's his specialism. It's a niche industry almost. So, um, um, I, I don't. I don't know that. That's. I don't think just saying that he's been to Yale takes well, him off it, out of the margin. Let's just say it's a little bit suspicious that we're to the three people. I wasn't like. Let me think of um, Yale artists, and then the, those are the. I mean, there there's a kind of lineage there in the same way that you know. Okay. Um, well, Yale, you know, a university founded by a slaver. Maybe it's just a no, good. No, I'm not talking it, about that. I'm talking about the work itself. You know, I mean, yeah. these works are 
are, you know, formally, morphologically similar. Just a couple of other things I want to say. If it had been about Kalamazoo, I would be so on board. But wouldn't that be great? I mean, we could go on about Kalamazoo. Well, Kalamazooians are more marginalized even than African Americans. So obviously, you know, it would be so great. But the other thing um, I I just um, wanted to say real briefly, I'm about, I'm almost very briefly because we're almost out of time and we've got another Uh, show. Okay, come on, go for it. Uh, I forgot what it was. Yeah, and you forgot what it was. Okay. During question times, when we ask yeah. our Alan distinguished Weinberg. audience to chip in, you can, yeah. you can become a, a, an audience member and chip in your last point on Titus Kafar. Okay, last show that we looked at and that you've seen up there was to me a joy and a revelation. I'd never heard of this artist, and in fact, it is her solo exhibition. Um, and she's not from that terrible, she's not from that elite institution, Yale. She struggled away at a small school called Columbia. And she is a painter that seems to me has the chops. I mean, um, the drawing in Kafar is um, an, a very finessed academic drawing, tweaked slightly for expressive purposes, but the expressive purpose is, to my mind, a kind of literalist thing. Um, here's an artist who's really, um, really drawing in paint, uh, which is a, an interesting thing to do. I mean, a, a problematic, but a, an exciting thing to do. Um, what struck me about these paintings as being particularly fresh was the fact that it seemed that they were all, they were all portraits. Uh, there was an Aesop portrait and then portraits of her friends. Um, and I liked the fact, well, it was portrait and a dream, which I thought had came from Jackson Pollock, but it apparently doesn't. It comes from um, somewhere else. Anyway, um, according to his, his dealer. But um, what, what was struck me as being fresh and fun and very Merlin Jamesian in a way, um, or rather, I mean, Merlin James, people used to say of his, him, he, he's, a, he's, this, he's this guy who paints group shows, that you would go in and, and you'd think it was more than one artist who was at work. Um, this is definitely a one-person exhibition, but I love the fact that each, it's as if she, had to, she pulled out a different style for, while, it, while always being her own style, she actually, um, uh, the, the, the touch and the, strategy, the painterly strategies were particular to each person and the dream of that person that she was depicting, and that seemed to me like a lot of fun. Her self-portrait looked like a, a kind of... Uh, uh, a wild and loose uh, Alice Neal, not that Alice Neal is um, tame and tight, but um, uh, taking Alice Neal for something of a walk, and then you turn around and there's something that looks like a Raoul Dufy, uh, but, and then there's something that uh, uh, has, has some sort of quality of um, um, Alison Katz, who's maybe not a household name herself, but um, she seemed to be channeling a lot of different people. That could be a symptom of immaturity, a woman still sort of finding her, her own voice, but I preferred to see it as um, a more sophisticated, um, not postmodern, but multilingual um, approach in painting. Um, anyone share my enthusiasm or wish to dissent from it? Um, uh, Vincent, what did you make of, of, um, of Well, I think it's interesting to note the ages of the artists we've been discussing. So we said that Merlin James is 54, and I think Mama Anderson's maybe 52 or a little bit younger. And Titus Kafar is about 38, 
37, and she's about 28. So, and this is, I think, her first major show, although she's had other shows. Um, so I, I went with a lot of anticipation after having seen the work online. And um, I feel like there's a lot of potential there. Like, I'd like to see how she develops. But I did, f and I, I was impressed with some of the qualities that you mentioned, the wet on wet drawing and painting. Um, I did feel like it, it was a little bit weak in, in terms of its structure, its internal structure. And um, so I felt like there's room for growth there. I did notice a, a kind of a quality, a decorative quality. It reminded me of Dufy as well. And there was one piece that actually, strangely, has something of a Francesco Clemente mm -hmm. feel. This one, I don't know the name of it. That's a detail of it. Right. I don't know, it's, but anyway, where the faces are, are kind of out of proportion or out of joint to one another and um, the well, it's a naivete, isn't it, really? That's, isn't, isn't, yeah. uh, can we maybe isolate from the people? We, it's, it's, it's interesting the way we all, uh, all, all some, many of us critics fall into the habit of uh, using proper names as descriptions. So, oh, it's very this one meets that one, but in that one's palette. Rather than saying it's, uh, it's naive, but it has an icon-like quality and it uses a muted palette. So it's... Um, uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. We always get accused, oh, that's a bad thing. Don't do that. It's like, sorry, you know? <laughs> like, I remember with Dana Schutz when yeah. she first came out and it was like, you know, I was like, oh, wow, yeah, Paula Motorson Becker. And then I'm, I don't go to a lot, uh, you know, I'm not huge and sort of, I got to contact the artist or something. I was on some tour walk into our studio, there's the Paula Motorson Becker book right there. <laughs> and it was like, you know, so I'm, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. It's just, and, and like I said, I mean, painting is so art historical, you yeah. know, you can't, you know, you put a painting on the wall, you're, you're inviting it. I just want to totally agree with you. I think she's maybe not quite ready. She's really good, uh -huh. but you know, it's kind of our moment where it's sort of like, you know, the world's full of 37 year olds. Don't be 26.